There is a part of me that can't believe I'm about to say this, but here we go. This is episode 100 of the SSR podcast. 100 episodes. Triple digits. Are you kidding me? Friends, whether you have been with me since the beginning or have joined the podcast party more recently, I hope you know that I am so incredibly grateful to you for being part of the SSR community. Two years ago, this passion project was little more than a twinkle in my eye, a creative outlet that I hoped would give me a cool place to talk about books with other people. It would have been awesome if a few people listened. Truthfully, I had big dreams for SSR, but I didn't know how to voice them. And here we are. Thank you, thank you, thank you for helping me make those dreams a reality. Beyond just the 100th episode of the podcast, this is also week three of SSR Pride Month. Throughout the month of June, you can expect to hear incredible conversations with book-loving guests from the LGBTQIA community. On each of these episodes, my guests and I will chat about a story that made a significant impression, sometimes good, sometimes bad, on them in their younger years. Today, my guests and I are taking a close look at Libba Bray's 2003 YA novel, A Great and Terrible Beauty. This is the first book in the Gemma Doyle trilogy, and as I've learned from my Instagram DMs, a very beloved title. I am so glad I finally got around to reading it, and I want to give a big shout out to my guest Megan for suggesting it and for exploring her sneaky suspicion that it was, and I quote, maybe a little gay, with me on today's show. A Great and Terrible Beauty is the story of 16-year-old Gemma Doyle, who was sent from her family's home in India to a posh boarding school in London after she witnesses the shocking death of her mother in a Bombay market. As if it weren't hard enough being the new girl in a school full of cliques and social expectations, including a wild pressure to get married, like ASAP, Gemma is also trying to figure out why she's having strange visions. The visions started the day that her mother died, and they don't seem to be going anywhere. Gemma ultimately finds her place at school among a group of friends named Felicity, Pippa, and Anne, and together they decide to form a club and explore the magic they learned about from an old diary that Gemma found in the woods nearby. Gemma figures out how her visions connect to that magic, and the girls are swept into an expansive new world in the realms, a seemingly idyllic place between life and death where they begin to live out their wildest dreams. Things turn sour, though, and Gemma has to somehow figure out how to fight evil, reconcile her feelings about her mom, and keep her friends safe. As I read it, the whole book is basically one long metaphor for women finding their voice and finding their power, so we talk a lot about that on this episode. We chat about what each of the main characters represents— call out some subtle references to queerness, discuss the problematic ways in which the author depicts characters of color, and so much more. Thanks so much to my guest Megan Tripp for joining me on this wild ride. You may know Megan as Books and Blazers on Instagram. Megan is a queer bookworm living her dream of working in publishing in New York City. She loves to read queer narratives of all kinds, literary fiction about dysfunctional families and relationships, same Megan, same, true crime stories, graphic novels, and YA. She lives in Manhattan with her cat, Kitty, and would like to clarify that she may be an expert in writing Instagram captions, but not so much in coming up with cat names, okay? Megan is on the planning committee for Books to Pride, and if you're listening to this during the month of June, you can get involved. Check out the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen slash episode 100 for all the details. If you haven't already, I'd also love for you to check us out on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Did you know that there's a smaller Facebook group where we engage in more book talk and share more about what happens on the show? Well, there is. It's called the SSR Podcast Community, and I'd love to see you there. You can bet that there will be plenty of 100th episode celebrations happening across social media this week, and next week, too, for our two-year anniversary, so don't miss out. If you love SSR and haven't left a five-star rating or review on iTunes, then I'm missing out on your feedback. I would so appreciate it if you took a few moments to do this. Ratings and reviews help me get the word out about the pod. I can't wait to see what you have to say. Thank you so much to all of the Patreon sponsors tuning in to episode 100. Patreon is a platform that allows you to support the independent creators who are putting out content you love. Rewards are up for grabs too. SSR patrons contribute a few dollars every month, as little as just $1, to the production of the podcast, and they get things like SSR merch, newsletters, bonus episodes, and more in return. Plus, they get the satisfaction of knowing that they're keeping this podcast going strong heading into year three. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. One more thing before we jump into this episode. Did I mention that it's episode 100? Let's talk about Libra FM. As you may already know, Libra FM is an amazing platform that allows you to support independent bookstores with the purchase of the same audiobooks that you can get from bigger companies. 
They're the same price, too. One way we can all be better allies in the Black Lives Matter movement is to support Black-owned businesses. So as you shop for audiobooks on Libra FM, I would encourage you to support Black-owned bookstores. Here are a few Black-owned indies that are currently partnered with Libra FM. Semicolon Bookstore, Source Booksellers, Uncle Bobby's Books, and Loyalty Books. Use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. And now, for the 100th time, let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Megan. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's another week of Pride Month, and I'm so excited to have you. I can't wait to hear more about your experience with this book. I do want to set the stage a little bit for what is happening with this episode and with this recording. You and I are recording today on June 6th. Um, It has been an emotional couple of days. It's been a couple of days of learning and reading and processing and thinking and quiet time mixed with engagement and all of those things. I did just want to note ahead of time to listeners, this is a 400-page book that Megan and I have both ingested in a fairly short period of time. And Megan, I know this isn't the first time you've read it, but it was the first time I've read it. So I absolutely feel like it was what I needed to balance out a lot of the other types of reading I was doing this week. But if it seems like I'm overwhelmed by some of the plot details, that's why, and I might need your help. But I I don't even care because I'm so excited to hear about why you chose this book. And I will give listeners a little bit of a sneak peek behind the scenes because we had actually picked another book. And a few days after we'd agreed on it, you sent me an email and you were apologetic about it, which you didn't need to be because this is actually kind of the best case scenario when I have somebody come to me and say like, you know, actually I found a book that really meant something to me and that's what I want to talk about. Like that is what I want with the podcast, especially for Pride Month when it's really important to me that my guests are having an opportunity to like really speak to stories that made an impression on them as teens or kids. So I'm going to kick it over to you. Tell me all of the things about A Great and Terrible Beauty by Libba Bray and why you decided to kind of like throw this little plot twist in the mix and choose this book instead of the one we originally picked. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it sort of caught me by surprise as well, I'll be honest. Um, I was trying to do one of those, you know, periodic book organization sprees, which was not very successful. But I did find a uh, paperback copy um, of this book at the back of one of my shelves. And it just sort of sparked, I think, what you sort of wanted this, you know, recording session to spark these, uh, this nostalgia feeling and this, oh my God, I haven't read this in a long time feeling. And, and I wonder if it holds up feeling, especially in light of everything that's been going on recently. I was wondering, you know, what I might have missed when I was a kid that I could really see and sort of get into in uh, reading it as an adult. I also remember that there was one character, uh, Felicity, who I'm sure we will talk about a lot, who I remember when I was reading it as a kid, being obsessed with her, like sort of through Gemma's like view of her. And I couldn't remember why exactly that was when I found this this copy. But I knew that there was something there's going to be something queer in there that I really wanted to get down and, and sort of explore. So that's why I sent you that, uh, hey, I found this and it might actually be a little gay. So maybe we should talk about it. You know? <laughs> and I, I don't think I was wrong. So <laughs> that was a very exciting little discovery for me. <laughs> well, I can say as a straight woman, there's a lot of gender stuff in this book. So I flagged a ton of not at all like subtle gender content in this book. So I think we have a lot to tackle there and I'm anxious to hear more what you were able to see on this sort of like more deliberately like queer reading of the book. But a little background on it. So it was published in 2003. It's the first novel in a trilogy called the Gemma Doyle trilogy appropriately as our main character is named Gemma Doyle. It was 
fairly well-received critically. Um, the American Library Association picked it as one of the best YA books of the year in 2004. It was meant to be adapted into a movie, and it's funny because I actually had a few people respond on my Instagram story when I showed that I was reading it. People are very pumped about this episode. No pressure. Um, <laughs> and at least like two-thirds of the people who messaged me were like, oh, I thought there was a movie, and then it never came out. Like, Can you find out anything about the movie? And it looks like <laughs> There was kind of a lot going on with it. Mel Gibson's production company actually took it on at first, which makes me wonder if maybe something happened there, like with the Mel Gibson connection. Because then it just kind of stalled, and Libba Bray was like, I'm not negotiating this with this particular company anymore. Um, But people were pumped about the movie, and I can see why, because as I was reading it, I could really like picture so much of this story. There's a boarding school element, which like always lends itself to all kinds of fun imagery, um, not to mention some really cool fantasy world building and just some really cool girl friendships which I appreciate more and more as I grow older in reading these books these books meant for teens so tell me a little bit about how it felt to you to get back into this story those first few pages those first few chapters when we meet Gemma she's living in Bombay India in the late 19th century she's with her mom in a market um which again like I my head was just like exploding with these beautiful images of them shopping and of course arguing as a mom and a teenage girl are wont to do I have to say it's not my favorite trope when I feel like we as like young readers are sort of conditioned to believe that like when you become a teenager you and your mom are definitely going to fight but it happened in this book and I bought it um what did you think as you sort of like reacquainted yourself with this world well I have to say that that first scene where she's with her mom in the market and her mother disappears and uh sort of kicks off all of the fantasy elements of this but also the the major plot point to get Gemma to the boarding school that scene really stuck with with me through my adulthood. I mean, I remember that scene immediately. As soon as I opened the book, I was like, I remember when I read this for the first time, I remember being really scared when she's running alone through this market after she has that huge fight with her mom and, and, you know, dramatically runs away. And I remember, you know, identifying with that as a teenager and being very dramatic and, and overly uh, invested in my mom being not in my life. You know, I didn't want her to be as involved as she wanted to be, uh, which I think is a pretty common, you know, 12 year old, 13 year old <laughs> feeling. Yeah. Um, and so I think that really rang true for me as a kid, but it also stuck with me enough as an adult that when I came back to it, I was able to remember how I felt when I was younger and also sort of compare and contrast how I felt now because reading it now, I was like, Gemma, what are you doing? Like, I I know how this scene ends and please be nice to your mother. It's going to be terrible. You don't want to do what you're doing. So it was an interesting, like I was still rooting for Gemma. I was just rooting for her in a very different way. Um, And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, the decade or so in between my last read and this read. But I think a lot of it also comes from the way that Libba Bray wrote the scene. You know, I think there's a very unique thing that she's able to do in all of her books. I'm, I'm a fan of her books in general, but especially in the Gemma Doyle trilogy where you can root for so many other characters in this world through Gemma's perception of them in so many different ways. You're not so stuck in Gemma's head that you can only see them through her eyes, which I think is like really interesting and really engaging and why I think I keep coming back to these books because I identify with the main characters and with the narrators, but I can also see sort of the larger world and where Gemma's, you know, messing up and where she's not seeing things that she could be seeing and stuff like that. So it was definitely a visceral scene to dive into. I don't remember it being the first scene, but I definitely remember that scene. So it was a, it was an interesting way to come back into this and, and sort of dive right back into that nostalgia. Well, I love your point about the characters in this book because I do think this is the first Libba Bray book that I've read, um, sadly, because now I'm like, she's amazing. Um, <laughs> one of the things that struck me most is that I think pretty much all of her characters, with maybe the exception of, of a handful are very well-rounded. And I think that that really is what facilitates what you're talking about, which is that, yes, I can see them through Gemma's eyes because she's our narrator um, and we're getting her POV on everything. But it's like bigger than that somehow. Like I, I understand what Gemma feels about them, but I also am able to form my own opinions, which I think isn't always true in a first person story because the characters as told through the narrator's perspective are somewhat one-sided based on like how they feel about them. So I think it's like pretty impressive that Libba Bray was somehow able to like still create these like very deep characters that go far beyond Gemma's impressions of them. 
that I sort of felt like I understood them beyond just her relationship. And I think part of that is that Gemma is not perfect and she is complicated too. She's well-rounded. We see it in this very first scene. She and her mom are having this pretty massive fight about the fact that Gemma really wants to go to London. It's actually her 16th birthday. And at this time in history, there was kind of this expectation that when you turn 16, if you're a quote unquote proper English girl, um, you will go and sort of be part of this rotation of social events and debutante balls and hopefully meet your husband. And now that she's turning 16, she's like, okay, we've been living in India for all of this time. I want to go back to London. It sounds great from all of grandma's letters. What are we doing? Can't we go? And her mom seems like pretty cool about kind of what I would say are pretty progressive ideas. She's like, do you really want to be ogled at by all of these men? Like, do you just want to feel like livestock essentially where they're bidding on you and like taking you away from your life? Is that really what's so attractive to you? And Gemma being a teen is like, Ugh, basically like, whatever mom, like you'll never understand. And as, as you alluded to, she's basically like very irrational. And, and I, I'm sure that if I read this again, knowing how the scene ends, that I would sort of be like in my head covering my eyes because it does have a very tragic end, this scene. Um, and it's very complicated, honestly, because there's some visions that Gemma has. This is the first time she's having these sort of clairvoyant visions that she's never experienced before. And that's interspersed with what's happening in reality. And to be honest with you, I was a little bit confused. I wasn't quite sure what was happening in real time and what was happening in her visions. But at the end of the scene, Gemma's mom has committed suicide and Gemma is feeling this massive guilt because it all happened after and sort of because she ran away from her. We have to remember that through the course of this book, she's now going to be plagued with these like very complicated feelings of A, I've just lost my mom and B, things ended at a really bad moment for us, which I think, again, just sort of adds the complexity of Gemma's character. Yeah, definitely. She she walks away from that, you know, introductory scene with us very conflicted and very sad, obviously, and sort of her life seems suddenly out of control to her in a very real, um, realistic way, I think, for a 16-year-old girl who's going through these huge life changes in general. Um, but it, it was also interesting to me to think about exactly how her life changes because she was chafing against what she saw as her mother's restrictions when, like you said, in reality, her mother was pretty progressive and trying to give her a different life that wasn't, you know, the proper society debutante life that um, was sort of laid out for her. And then once her mother is gone, Gemma's whole life is then turned into exactly what she thought she wanted and exactly what her mother didn't want for her. And it turns out that she maybe didn't want that all along, you know, because when she's sort of shuffled into this boarding school and, and into the proper society that she's been trying to get into, it doesn't quite fit with what she thought she wanted. And it doesn't quite fit with the girl that she is now after having this experience with, you know, losing her mother. So I thought that was a really interesting sort of shift in her perspective that we have to think about too. And like, again, when I read it this time, I, I sort of remembered that and, and was screaming at her to not do what I knew she was going to do. But reading it for the first time, it, it did really feel like suddenly everything was out from under her, but maybe she would still get what she wanted. And then it just sort of all falls apart again in a different way. And especially these visions, I think it's a really interesting point in her life to start having these. Um, and it's obviously the plot point that sort of carries through for the rest of the trilogy, but I think it's also interesting to think about what these YA and, and middle grade authors choose to use as sort of like growing into adulthood metaphors and powers that come to you as you start to form your own opinions about the world and become separate from maybe what your family wants you to be. And in this case, those visions are a direct tie to her mother, which we find out later, because her mother also has some some powers that we explore throughout the book. And that directly conflicts with you know, her life that's set out for her. So I, I just think it's a really interesting way. And the, the way that the visions sort of work are out of her control at first, and she learns to control them. And that feels very, you know, metaphorical for gaining your own agency as you grow into an adult through, you know, your teenage years, especially as a young girl, where everything feels very out of control, even if you're not in Victorian era London. So yeah, I think that was always something that I really appreciated about this trilogy. Yeah, the visions are interesting, because like I said at the beginning of our recording, as I was reading this book in real time, I was feeling sort of overwhelmed by the fantasy elements. And listeners of the show know that sometimes 
I do get a little bit lost in like the action of a book like this and I feel like I have to go back and read it again and it just can get a little bit confusing with all of the reading I do for the podcast in particular and and sometimes I can sort of like get in the weeds with it a little bit and I was feeling that way this week partially I think just because of everything important and essential um, and emotional and heartbreaking happening in the world around us but when I went back this morning to just kind of like take stock of the things that I'd highlighted and like try to orient myself before we jumped on to, to chat, it became so much clearer to me like what the visions were really about because like in real time I'm thinking, okay, like I have to try to remember like what this vision was about versus what this vision was about and like how do the visions work and like what are the mechanics of it and I don't want Megan to think that I like wasn't following it. But in <laughs> fact, as I was reviewing everything today, the visions are really just a metaphor for the process of like wanting to have your own desires and your own interests and your own decision-making abilities, your own agency, as you said. And there's this whole effort on the part of this like ancient order of men in the book, really, and also on the part of the administration of the school that she's going off to to like suppress this magic that the girls are starting to experience. And as I was going through my highlights today, I was like, oh, wait, like this actually makes perfect sense like these visions are really just about her asserting herself and having her own mind in a world that like really doesn't want her to in a world that wants her to just be seen and not heard to look pretty to like go to parties to do exactly what the men around her want to do and so um then I was able to like take some of the pressure off myself of being like okay what happened in like the third or the fourth vision because she has the visions throughout the book and they do evolve and change as you mentioned Megan at the beginning they kind of come out of nowhere Um, they're often like much more traumatic and scary and as I said like it's it's almost difficult to tell what's real and what's in a vision because the lines are really blurred and then as we get to know Gemma and as she sort of gets to know herself better over the course of these 400 pages she realizes that she has control over them and what I liked a lot about this is a weird way to say it, but like the mechanics of the visions is that she starts using the word I choose. She says, I choose this in my vision. I make this choice, which I thought was such a beautifully like active way for Libba Bray to situate her in her power to be like the way that I'm going to activate this magic that I have is just to say that I choose it. Like it's that simple. And this was a time in history when women didn't have any choices at all. Yeah, I, I definitely flagged that as well. I remember reading that as a kid and being sort of disappointed because um, I read a lot of, you know, fantasy that had lots of world building and lots of magic systems that you had to yeah. learn and harness and figure out how to use. And it came from deep within you and you had yeah. this whole other language you had to learn, you know? Um, and so I remember sort of feeling a little bit disappointed when she was finally getting control over it when I was reading it as a kid, cause it, it was so simple. It was just, I choose this. It's, it's one line on the page and all of a sudden she seems to have control and she's making this, this new world into what she wants it to be. And then taking that agency back with her into the real world when she comes out of the visions and out of the, you know, the realms as they're called, but looking back now and and reading it now, I, I feel the opposite. I completely agree with you. It's such a wonderfully active way to give these girls back their agency and, and give them agency they didn't actually have, like not giving it back to them at all, actually. And I think that that's a running theme that I definitely recognize this time around all the way through the book. And if I continue reading this trilogy, which I hope I will be able to at some point, um, I think it, it, you know, it goes through the whole trilogy. It's all about agency and choice and these girls not being handed those opportunities that they might be able to at a different time or if they had, you know, different backgrounds. And it's always about what they want their lives to be. And it's always about how they're trying to fight against the systems that are keeping them from creating those lives for themselves. Mm. And I think each of those girls in our little group at the boarding school, which I'm sure we'll get into, they go their different ways. You know, they each have a different vision of what they want their life to be, a different view of what they want their choices to be. And the whole book is about them just trying to make that happen through magic or through reality, you know, in the magical world or in the, in the real world. And I think that's just so beautiful to see now, even though I didn't fully appreciate it as a kid. Right. I can see how as a kid, it might be sort of anticlimactic because at a certain point you've attached yourself to Gemma and like, you really want her to just like kick ass and like figure out how to handle her visions. And then she's literally just like, I choose you. And then it happens and you're like, wait, really? That's it? Um, but no, as an adult, you're exactly. like, oh, well, and especially because as a grown up, sometimes I feel like it's not even that easy. Like it's, it's hard sometimes to A, make a decision. And then once you've made a decision to actually like take the action steps to get that decision and make it like a reality in your life. And so 
I sort of feel like in making it so simple, Libba Bray is like sort of speaking to the adults and all of us and being like, no, sometimes it actually is as simple as just like making the choice, declaring it and then figuring out how to do it. Like, and that's something that I personally am always working on. Um, and I think like, unfortunately the sad reality is that all women during this time, the book is set in 1895 are not given a whole lot of choices. And in the four core girl characters, Gemma, Felicity, Pippa, and Anne, we sort of have four examples of why choice is not permitted. Um, Each one of them is sort of in their own separate lane, and there's a a specific reason that each of them is really limited in their options in life. And I think that that maybe is sort of like representative of the larger female population at this time. These are also young girls. They're 16 and 17, um, but they all have these specific circumstances that are keeping them from having agency. And the sad part is that they were not the exception. This is the rule, Um, but they just all sort of have nuances to that situation. But I think it's time we talk about the girls. Because I love their friendship. I love to watch them develop over the course of the book. Let's start with Felicity because I know you mentioned up front that you really attached yourself to her. And so I think we should just like jump right in. My observation about Felicity at the beginning of the book when Gemma first gets to the Spence Academy is that some of Felicity's sort of like social manipulations, especially with Anne, who is kind of like, unfortunately, she's the school outcast. She's a scholarship student. Um, She's there because she doesn't have any family to support her. And basically the school is like doing their good Christian duty and allowing her to stay in this really crummy room because she's going to go become a governess. Pretty much all of her other classmates are at Spence because they're learning like the art of being a fancy woman so that they can go get married. But Anne is just there to go become a governess and everybody's mean to her. And Felicity early on in the book, the way she behaves with Anne and sort of in relation to these other like more popular girls, it was very Regina George to me. Like I think there's even a scene where she's kind of like playing Gemma and Anne against each other in terms of like who gets to hang out with them. And it was a very, it was very much like the plastics of who gets to sit with them and that being like a very performative thing. And I just kept writing in my book, like plastics, 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 but Felicity becomes much more complicated. So why don't you tell me a little bit about maybe what you remember about reading about her as a kid and then maybe your experience coming back to her now? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great way to describe the the core four of girls that we follow throughout this book. I think Felicity stuck out in my mind, you know, reading this in a pre mean girls world as exactly that, you know, lowercase M lowercase G mean girl, (laughs) but she definitely has a lot of like Regina George quality. She's the, she's the leader of that, you know, mean girls pack. We've all had one of those in our lives. I feel like it's a pretty universal experience. There's always that one you know, girl that seems to have control over the social hierarchy of the the social politics of the school. And I remember, I remember that she was an exciting character. Like before I started reading this book, I just remember, I remember her name, which was a big thing. So I didn't remember all of the girls' names that we come into contact with. And I remember that she stuck out to me as someone that Gemma was really close to. And it's interesting to read it again, because going through it, it's not necessarily that she and Felicity are closer than any of the other girls. She sort of has different relationships, different unique relationships with each of the other three girls. But Felicity has the most, I think, like you said, the most complicated story, I think. She she goes wildly from one extreme to the other. It feels like she has a lot of things going on. She feels very lost in her own life, but doesn't want to admit that and isn't ready to sort of take control over her life because she doesn't even know like how lost she is, you know, she's taking control in, in this social way at school, I think, because of the fact that she doesn't have as much control over her life or her parents or her, you know, status in the world as she wants to. And I think that's just such a fascinating character trait to give, you know, she, she's not the main character. She's not a side character. I don't want to say she's a side character, but she's not our narrator. She's not our main character, but she has such a rich inner life that we still get to see through Gemma and and sort of in spite of Gemma at some points, which I really enjoyed reading back through this time. I also think that she's just the most free-spirited, I guess I would say. Her personality is huge. She loves to push boundaries and she loves to sort of scandalize the other girls. I feel like that was a word that popped up a lot whenever Felicity was talking. She was being scandalous. You know, she was sort of pushing back in the small ways that she could because she sort of felt out of control in larger ways. But I think when we first meet Felicity, it's quite clear that she's sort of manipulative and and feels like she's better than everybody else. And then we very quickly see when she um, is discovered by Gemma, 
with this uh, sort of illicit relationship um, that she is still, you know, a scared 16 year old girl who doesn't quite know what she's gotten herself into. So it's interesting that we see that switch happen very, very quickly. So we're, we sort of set the tone of who Felicity is. She's got this big voice and this big, loud personality, and she feels like she's in control. But in reality, she's a 16 year old girl who has no options, you know, just like everybody else basically at this school. But I also think that Anne is a really interesting sort of representation. I want to say it's not quite the right word, but she's, she's the one that could very easily, again, sort of fall flat as a character. I think in, in other books, I think that like a stereotype almost Mm -hmm. could very easily just become like another, you know, wallflower girl. She's not quite as pretty as everybody else. You know, she doesn't have any money. She's not destined for greatness, but she's so, she's also so rich and she has so many different layers to her that Gemma slowly starts to peel back, you know, whether she wants to or not (laughs) just by being, you know, in close proximity with these girls, but also going through all of the magical and real life um, adventures that they go through together. I think Pippa is really the most interesting though, as far as like a cross section of the society that we're looking at because Mm -hmm. she comes from a wealthy family who wants her to be, you know, she's beautiful. That's like the first thing we hear about Pippa is that she's gorgeous and that she comes from a, you know, well-off family, but still her only options are to get married. Like she's here to be married off to this man that they've already sort of picked out for her. Um, whose name is Mr. Bumble, which I think is so, (laughs) so terrible, but in such a perfect way. It does him Um, no favors, but I'd say it captures him really well. Right, exactly. And it captures that, like, that represents that choice for her, you know, mm-hmm. like that, that is just so bumbling and, and she's, she doesn't really have an option and it's, it's comical, but in a sad way. And so she's being forced through this very specific door, but from the outside, she looks like she has everything you could want as a girl, um, yeah. you know, at the top, the top of this society. And like, she seems like she's succeeding in this society that tells you exactly here's your checklist of what you need to do to succeed, you know, be beautiful, be smart, get married. And she's Mm -hmm. got all of those, but she's clearly not happy because that's not what she wants. So there's so many different layers to how they're being suppressed via the school and via the society and what choices they do and don't have are so different. But the overarching theme is still that they don't have a lot of choices, which is why they find so much strength in these magical abilities as they start to figure them out and why that I choose this line is so powerful. I feel like once we get to know them a little bit more, because it is just all about giving them the option and, and sort of helping them figure out that they do have agency, even if it has to be within certain constraints, you know? Yeah. And, and to your point about Pippa, not only is she being groomed to get married, forced to get married, really, but she's getting forced to get married like right now when she's 16 or 17 because her dad has such a vicious gambling problem that her family has no money. So not right. only is she being pushed in a direction that she's not ready for, but it's fully like for the financial gain of her family because her dad like couldn't hold it together. So she like I would say maybe most explicitly is being used as a pawn in this like man system. Um, and she's romantic. Like what she really wants and what we see when they start exploring these magical realms is like this real love story. And I'm sure part of that is for her, marriage has always been framed as this very practical, unromantic notion. And it sort of reminds me almost of um, the new adaptation of Little Women. There's that moment where Amy talks about marriage as a financial construct. And she has that whole argument with Laurie about like, it's nice that you don't think it's a financial agreement, but it is. I feel like that's how Pippa sees it. Um, but there's this part of her that is so just inherently romantic. And she has this idea that sort of like this knight in shining armor will come and give her the kind of relationship that she wants. But because her dad, quite frankly, like fucked up his finances, she has to marry this guy, Mr. Bumble. Um, and unfortunately, like she had sort of accepted that until Gemma comes in and shakes things up. What I'll say about Felicity is that I feel like everybody had a Felicity in their high school, and not only because she was a mean girl, whether you want to look at that as like lowercase or capital M and G, but because there's something just very like engaging about her. Like when Gemma sees Pippa and Felicity for the first time, she says that Pippa is the most beautiful girl she's ever seen. And we hear about that throughout the book. Like that's 
you know, as if we need another layer of disturbing onto Pippa's arranged marriage. Like, she is this incredibly beautiful person who should have, like, all of the options in the world. Like, if you want to break it down to that sort of simple level of, like, oh, if you're conventionally good-looking, like, you'll have all of these options. And she has no options because her parents have made the decision for her. Um, But at the same time, there's something about Felicity that, like, almost draws Gemma to her even more. And I think throughout the book, she is just sort of this symbol of, like, feminine power. And I think she's the first person that Gemma's been around, other than her mom to some extent, because I think there was something, like, very special about her mom's energy, too. But I feel like something about Felicity's energy was just, like, very fascinating to Gemma because she's one of the first people she's ever met who's like really been able to like figure out how to work the system a little bit um in different kinds of ways sometimes it's very manipulative and like negative and not very nice but she also figures out how to use those powers and like real world powers not just the powers of going to the realm for good like over time as she and Gemma get to know each other better I think she I think she just asserts herself in different ways and like is not afraid to be confident I actually pulled out this one excerpt and it's not at all related to anything that we're talking about but I do think it was sort of like the prime felicity moment for me it's when she's walking out to the forest and I I will call out the sort of for me most problematic part about this book and it shows the book's age is Libba Bray's reference to a group of people called gypsies, um, which is not a word that we, of course, condone or use anymore. Um, it's a group of people living in the forest near school. And Megan, you referred earlier to this sort of like illicit affair that Felicity is having, um, which is with one of the quote unquote gypsy men. And that's how she and Gemma bond because Gemma like agrees to cover for her. But Later in the book, when Felicity is walking out to sort of, like, ask them for help, Gemma says of this, like, sort of dramatic walk that Felicity is taking, Felicity ignores us. She walks out toward them, an apparition in white and blue velvet, her head held high as they stare in awe at her, the goddess. I don't yet know what power feels like, but this is surely what it looks like, and I think I'm beginning to understand why those ancient women had to hide in caves, why our parents and teachers and suitors want us to behave properly and predictably. It's not that they want to protect us. It's that they fear us. Boom. Yes. I I actually love, love, love that passage as well. It stuck out to me on this reread as well. And I think what it sort of inspired in me is this read through and, and flagging that passage sort of reminded me why I fell in love with teenage witch narratives Mm. and why, you know, young women with power that adults and that other people in the world fear was so powerful for me as a kid. And I think this is probably one of the first books that showed that to me um, and really gave me the words like that phrase, you know, it's not that they're, they're trying to, um, or they're, I don't know what power feels like, but this is what it looks like, you know, Mm -hmm. like you're trying to, to assert that and you don't know yet that you have that power, but it's there in the way that you are, you know, embodying it outside and that they fear, you know, the ability to break out from what they're keeping you the box that they're keeping you in is what they're scared of. And I, I just didn't quite make that connection because I don't think of this as like a witch book, you know, but Mm -hmm. I definitely read a lot of those like witchy YA, like the teen coven who's, you know, hiding in the quote unquote caves. And so I think this is a really interesting sort of middle ground there. You know, it's like, it's a Gothic book. It's a fantasy book. It's sort of a, you know, witchy narrative because these girls have magical powers, but you know, the witchy narrative narratives are really just me coming back over and over again to female power and to giving especially young women power from an early age so that they can make these choices and that they can have these opportunities that they maybe wouldn't have had before if they hadn't learned how to ask or how to make those opportunities for themselves. Yeah, I agree with you. I really liked how it was a middle ground because I can be sort of hit or miss as an adult with fantasy books. I was a huge fantasy reader when I was a kid and so it sort of makes me sad that I can be hit or miss with them now. But I liked that this book was really split between these fantasy worlds that the girls were occupying as they become closer and as they start their own order. Um, But then they would come back to school. And so for me, that it was nice to sort of have that grounded element and it allowed them to sort of like grow and change in both elements, which I liked. Um, And you could sort of see how one reflected the other, like as they were evolving and changing in this fantasy world in the realms, then they were coming back to school and putting some of that work to use in real life and vice versa. So I think it sort of like sped up the way that they were able to develop over time, which was interesting. 
So let's talk a little bit about like the fantasy elements and maybe the, we could call them like witchier elements. Gemma stumbles on this diary in the woods and she sees that it's a diary of a girl named Mary Dowd who seems to have been a student at Spence, I believe like 15 or 20 years earlier, 25 years, I think, before, before these girls are students there. And she begins to read it and she sees that Mary and her friend Sarah seem to have had similar visions to what she's experiencing. And at this point, she's new to school. She's kind of trying to find her bearings. She's very freaked out that she has these new visions all the time. She's like, I don't think I can talk to anybody about this. Her brother, Tom, when he dropped her off at school, was very clear about, like, be normal, like, be cool. Please don't tell anybody that we have weird stuff going on in our family. Just, like, hold it together. So she hasn't confided in anybody about what she's dealing with. She hasn't even confided in anybody about this very traumatic experience that she's had watching her mom's tragic death and like the guilt that she's carrying because of it. So when she sees this diary and understands that there are other girls, even in 25 years earlier, that can relate to her, she's like, okay, great. Like, maybe this is going to be fine. And as she and the other girls begin to bond, she starts to share the diary with them. There are some classes with this cool art teacher. I love a cool art teacher in a YA book. Like, (laughs) If I had a dime for like every cool art teacher that I've read in a book for the podcast... Well, if it was a dime, I wouldn't have that much money. But I'd be able to buy, like, some candy, which wouldn't be so bad. Um, love a cool art teacher. So there's some sort of, like, folklore that the art teacher, Miss Moore, talks about that informs what they're learning about. And all of this comes together. And I believe it's Felicity, classic Felicity, who's like, you know what? We should start our own order. Um, we should start our own special club. And so they start going out into the caves at night, and they, like, figure out what their kind of rituals are going to be. And a lot of their rituals at first are just, like, reading, doing dramatic readings from the diary, which I love because it starts small like they're not doing anything that crazy to begin with they just want to get out of this like really dark miserable sounding school and I think we have to remember that their lives are very boring that's what kept coming up in a lot of the reviews that I found Um, and I think when you read 400 pages of a story sometimes like it's hard to remember that because you're in the fantasy part of it and, and it just feels like very sprawling, this this tale. But when you break it down, as some of these reviewers did, their like day-to-day lives are very dull. They don't even really have super interesting classes. They have like Latin classes, no offense to Latin, and like deportment classes. I don't even know what that is. And like elocution classes. And occasionally they do waltz and they have to wear corsets. And it just sounds really boring. They have to go to church at least twice a day I think Um, and they're just unhappy so Felicity's like screw this like let's start a club which I appreciate what did you think of these first scenes where they're like kind of dipping their toes into like what increasingly feels a little bit like I don't know I don't want to use witchy because witchy feels wrong but it in the moment it kind of felt that way yeah I mean yeah witchy is not quite the right word I just think it has the same vibe where it's um you know a group of young girls who are finding power in bonding together and I think that the metaphor that I keep coming back to that I love so much about like witchy books or magical women you know in books is that that's the way that they find their power is through each other right and through like bonding together and like um bonding over the fact that they maybe don't have the agency that they want or they are you know angsty teenagers that hate their parents or whatever else goes into like witchy you know movies or, or YA books and, and are misunderstood I think, is, I think that was the other thing right. with all of them especially Gemma like for me that was the thing that stood out most especially early in the book, I feel like Gemma's biggest problem is that she just feels constantly misunderstood by everyone, including her mom at the beginning. We see later on that her family doesn't seem to get her. When she first arrives at Spence, she's having trouble kind of like conveying who she really is to people. And I think that all of these girls are struggling with some level of feeling misunderstood because they're not allowed to fully represent who they are. So it's only in these like private, maybe witch-like settings where they feel like they can fully be themselves. Right, exactly. And that's and that's where their power comes from. And that's where yeah. they feel like they have a little bit more control because they're choosing to be in that situation as opposed to being forced into the other situations in their lives. You know, I did really love the first few scenes where they're, they're sort of dancing around these caves and drinking stolen whiskey and, and reading from this book and like a weird little magical book club almost even before there's (laughs) magic, you know, they're they're loving narrative and they're reading about it. And they're, like you said, they're finding, you know, someone who sounds like them or who went through similar things that they are going through now through this diary. 
And I think the cool art teacher stereotype is definitely one of my favorites as well. And I like that she, (laughs) that art teacher is the one that introduces them to the caves and shows them that there's like this magical order that existed at some point mythically or really, or years ahead of them at this school. And that's where um, some of these girls found some power and they found something that, that sounded like them or looked like them or seemed like something they would want to be at some point. And so they were able to sort of bond over that. And I love that the, you know, the fun art teacher is also the one that sort of encourages their individuality you know, like not only is it in an art classroom where you have some, a little bit more freedom of expression than in your elocution class or your French class, but she does, she, she encourages them to break the rules and she encourages them to sort of be different from each other. And I do think it's interesting. And I want to point out one character who's not part of our like core four, Cicely. Mm. She, she was initially one of Felicity's group of friends. Yeah. She was um, in the plastics as I first defined them. She was like part of the manipulative behavior once. Gemma arrived right. and was like kind of trying to make friends. Right. She's definitely one of the like original mean girls. And she, she sort of gets pushed out of that group by Felicity once Felicity starts her own order. And, you know, once again, she's manipulative of the social politics of the school. But what I found interesting was when there were these, these instances within the school where they were able to express their individuality, Cicely wanted to follow the rules. Yeah. So when she was given the freedom, she chose to stay within what she was told to do. And I think when I was a kid reading that, my initial instinct was, well, she doesn't know any better. You know, she hasn't been informed that she has options. So that's all she ever knows. So that's all she's ever going to do. But reading it now and having lived 10 more years and read more about feminism and have a bit more understanding of, of woman's choice, that very well could be her choice. You know, she wants to follow the rules. This is what makes her feel safe. This is her version of taking control over her life is feeling in control and making these decisions for herself. Even when they opened the gates, she stayed where she was because that's what she wants to do. And so I think we see that split happen pretty early with Cicely and um, Elizabeth, I think is the other two. Those are the two that sort of fall apart from Felicity and Pippa when they first split off. And so that's like sort of a a theme, I think, running through as well when they are given these, these opportunities, some find ways to create this, you know, book club in the caves where they find their Mm -hmm. power and they find their magic and some choose to stay where they are and choose to follow their rules because that's what they want their life to look like. Um, And so I think it was an interesting decision on Libba Bray's part to include those characters and to make that choice very explicit on the page. You know, they choose to, to follow the assignment as originally laid out. They don't go off and make and make it into their own thing. So I think that was something that I definitely didn't notice before, but I really loved picking up on this time yeah they wouldn't have wanted to be part of the club like they would not have wanted to go out in the middle of the night which is breaking the rules they would not have wanted to steal the whiskey which was breaking the rules they definitely would have run the other direction once once Gemma was like hey um I have these visions and then they would have definitely (laughs) run in the other direction again and definitely told an adult once Gemma was like so I think I can like magically transport us to these realms like they would have not been excited about that at all so I think you're right I think it's important to show that there's this breadth of ways in which these girls are handling the choice or lack thereof that's handed to them Um, and I think it's also kind of indicative of maybe how we might imagine these girls will move into adulthood in the real world in these books like Elizabeth and Cecily are probably going to continue on a very straight and narrow path they're gonna keep up with this plan that they were given they'll finish Spence they'll probably do the full debutante ball circuit and find a husband and just soldier forth. And as I have always said on this podcast, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We are talking feminism here. Like that's a valid choice just as Gemma's potential choice to not do those things or Pippa's potential choice to not marry the guy that her parents want her to marry. Those are also excellent choices as long as they're made with full information, with full agency, and with full freedom. That's what feminism is about. So we are not shading Elizabeth and Cecily for, like, wanting to go about their usual plan. Um, And I hope that they enjoy those debutante balls because I'm sure they'll be a lot of fun. But it was really cool to see Gemma and her new group of friends push Miss Moore, the cool art teacher, to broaden the choices that were handed to them in art class and then to also sort of color outside the lines with this little club that they've put together. A A lot happens in the realms It's hard to even know how to sum it up because this is where it gets a little foggy for me. Um, Gemma does learn how to control her visions more, again, by sort of like 
figuring out how to pinpoint her choice and like what she wants to see in her visions. She's told by um, this boy that she recognizes from the market in India that she needs to stop having visions. He represents this old order of men who like he kind of vaguely talks about how they just like don't want her to have visions. And I think that was sort of like meant to represent an older order, an older attitude of men or sort of like old school people in general who might suggest that women should just like not dream big or like not think outside the box. Um, so I kind of think that that's why Libba Bray opted to keep this whole idea sort of vague because when you really think about like the real groups that advocated those ideas in the past, like those, that that was vague. Like there was no reason for them to be suppressing women's freedom or women's like dreams. Um, and that's kind of what we see in Kartik and the way he's like expressing his side and his requests for Gemma to stop having visions and to stop like pursuing her magical powers. There's sort of like a little bit of like a romance thing happening. Gemma has a crush on Kartik and she has some sexy dreams about him, um, which I'm <laughs> sure as a teen, you're like, ooh, hmm, that's exciting. And ultimately, Gemma is able to control her visions enough to sort of like actively transport herself and her friends into the realms which is kind of this like weird in-between space it's between life and the afterlife and so um, a lot of it sort of involves like making the choice to return to life or to fully be in the afterlife if that makes sense at the end we see that with Pippa who um, unfortunately does die in the real world and then Gemma stumbles upon her in the realms where she's then able to like sort of decide if she wants to go back to school and like occupy this dull future of like marrying Mr. Bumble and she decides to stay um, meaning she can live out her life with her knight in shining armor but unfortunately then when Gemma returns to school she sees that means that Pippa is like actually dead to put a very fine and unfortunate point on it so that's what's happening in the realms at first the realms are like lovely and sparkly and shiny and Gemma finds her mother again, and they're reunited, and her mother kind of starts to explain the nature of her powers to her um, and is encouraging her to, like, not use them too much, but to, like, learn how to control them again. Um, and then as the girls start to, like, push the boundaries and try to, like, sort of just use the powers for fun and to go into the realms more and more often, something starts to shift, and we see that things get a little bit darker in the realms, which is what Gemma had been warned about. I feel like I'm summarizing a lot, but... There's a lot that happens in this book. And then there's this connection that Gemma discovers um, between this like tragedy that took place at the school many years ago that was tied to the diary. And then we discover that the diary was actually written by her mom, um, which right. is a huge bombshell. <laughs> what did you make of all of this? Like, did you find that a lot of it was engaging? Did you find that some of it was confusing? What was your read on it as an adult? I think I enjoyed it just as much as an adult as I did a kid. I will say that um, I do want to acknowledge the fact that, you know, this was a, a, pro a book. I don't want to say a product of its time because yeah. this wasn't necessarily okay back then either. But the treatment of people of color in the book is not no. great. The, like you referenced, use of the word gypsy, which we obviously don't use anymore. Um, so the Romani people definitely are not represented accurately. No. Um, they're sort of shadowed away in the forest and that's problematic. And Kartik as well, you know, the, the Indian um, order of men that are sort of against the order of women who have these powers also not described very well, not treated very well. So that, that romance never really sat right with me yeah. as a kid either. And I'm not really sure if that's because I was picking up on some of those things. I don't think so because I was not nearly as, you know, informed as a kid as I am now. There's but a lot of othering you know, is the word that I've used over that, yeah. is othering exactly. is that we're sort of positioning all of these white, generally upper middle class girls against anybody who looks different than they do. Right. Um, and I, I think, unfortunately, that's a tool that has been used all too often. Um, and as we're learning mm -hmm. more and more, it's not about intention, it's about impact. And so while a creator like Libba Bray may have thought nothing of just being like, oh, here's one group who has one motive and here's another group and they just happen to look different. Often what that does is position mm -hmm. two groups of people who look different than each other and one is good and one is bad. And all too often people of color are representing the quote unquote bad side. And we do see that in this book. So I appreciate right. you pointing that out more specifically. Yeah. It's, it's the, you know, the dark versus light yep. trope that comes back around that, that we've identified as problematic. I will say, though, that 
the relationship with Kartik changes throughout the rest of the trilogy. I do remember that. I had a feeling um, about I, I that. I have to keep reading. Yeah. yeah, I have to keep reading. But, um, you know, his treatment is not necessarily improved, but they definitely have like a stronger relationship and he becomes more of a character okay. um, going forward once they sort of get into the weeds of this magical power. I do think that this book was definitely the beginning of what I have recently learned is called a portal fantasy Mm -hmm. where you literally walk through a door into like another world. So Uh I loved, you know, the Narnia books and, and these, these books specifically where this book, it's a, it's a door of light is how Mm -hmm. they describe it. So, you know, that's how she sort of brings up this vision um, of this door of light and the other three girls can't necessarily open it, but Gemma can, and all four of them can go through it so that she still has the singular power. And I like, there's, there's a point in the book where one of the, um, like creatures that live in the realms describes it as between life and death, between dreams and waking, like the people in the real world think that they're awake, but they're actually dreaming the reality that they're living in. And this is the real world. So I think that's a really interesting thing that comes up a lot, you know, reality versus the realms, dreams, awake, alive, dead, um, because her mother is a huge character, but only in the realms. And that's a little bit shadowy, you know, yeah, and uh, not quite clear. But yeah, I think that this was definitely one of the books that got me excited about the idea of another world, like separate from reality. You know, there's like almost like an escape where you literally walk through a door and you're in somewhere beautiful and it's like an Eden, it's a garden. And, and each of the four girls find something there that speaks to them and speaks to what's missing in their reality, which I think is, is empowering. And then they're able to take that power and that feeling of agency back into the real world and sort of make decisions a little bit more aggressively than they probably would have if they hadn't, you know, experienced them in the realms before. So yeah, but it, but it's, you know, it comes at a cost, which is what's always the case with these sorts of things. You know, this power definitely isn't easy to wield and Gemma isn't ready for it yet. And I think that's part of the reason why Pippa ends up, you know, choosing to stay in the realms slash pass away in the in the reality. But I also feel like we missed one major point about Pippa, which I think is interesting to, oh, to yes, talk about. Yes, this is good. Of her choice. good call. Yeah. So she one of the reasons why she also needs to get married so early, mm-hmm. which I had completely forgotten about until I read this again, um, she has epilepsy. Yeah. And so she suffers from seizures. And of course back then they don't know anything about it. They don't really know, you know, how to treat it, how to talk about it. It's a secret. It's a shameful secret that she has to keep from her future husband. And it's the reason that they want to marry her off before anyone finds out Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, get the money that they need to keep their wealthy name, you know, intact. And she's not allowed to tell anybody, even when she's suffering these seizures at school and part of her choice. And I think part of her like desire for this romantic sort of otherworldly, unrealistic romance in her life is because she doesn't feel like that's a possibility in her real life because of her condition, you know? And so at the end, you're right. She, um, she sort of falls into this river at the end of, of the book when they're in the realms and trying to escape this power that's overcoming them. And uh, they have to leave her when they leave through the door of light. They leave that version of Pippa sort of in the river and in the realms and close the door. And so we have reality Pippa, who is now sort of in a coma of sorts. And then we have the Pippa that's stuck in the realms. And when Gemma goes back to save her and bring her back, Pippa says, what is my life going to look like if I go back through that door? I have the choice to stay here and to stay with my knight in shining armor that I've created for myself in the realms and not suffer through whatever I would be forced to do in order to hide, you know, this huge part of my life in order to hide myself in order to be something I'm not, I would rather make this choice and sacrifice what I do have in the real world for you know, this world that I created for myself, basically, which I thought was so beautiful and so impactful and so heartbreaking. But I feel like it wouldn't have that same impact if she didn't have to make that choice with regards to her condition. You know, I feel like the fact that she made that choice because of the way that society and reality viewed her and and her epilepsy was, was really the crux of that choice. I think was so interesting and something I completely forgot about when I read it as a kid. Like it just didn't even register to me. I feel like, um, as deeply as it does this time around. I'm so glad you brought that up because I thought that that was a fascinating element of her character, but obviously I'm trying to keep up with all these other threads and that slipped my mind in this (laughs) conversation. And it's very important. And I think is, it's also, I don't know, growing up, something that's always stuck with me that my mom always said was like, you never know what's happening sort of at home for someone, um, to put it simply. And I think 
we've already referred to how Pippa is like so beautiful and seems to have so many things going for her. And though we now know that like the direction that her life is having to take against her own will is really problematic at the time, people were probably like, oh, and she already has a husband, like she has money, all of these things. But she has this condition that a is a, is dangerous to her health first of all and most importantly, but it's also um, as she sees it like a danger to her future. And so I think that that sort of like twist in her character um, complicates her in a really interesting way and is imperative in the way that her plot line ends um, in the story. So there are some there are some threads that we have not been able to tie up, um, and that's okay because this is a four hundred page book, and I would encourage you to read this, everyone, if you have not or if you want a reminder. I would be remiss, Megan, because it is Pride Month, and you did mention that you <laughs> had a, a sneaky feeling that this book might be a little gay. And so now that we have discussed so many elements of it, I'd love if you'd be willing to just talk a little bit more about that, um, if your expectations were, or if your sneaky suspicion was correct. Um, tell me more about that piece of this. Yeah, um, my sneaky suspicion was definitely correct. Um, I think that reading it through uh, you know, explicitly queer lens this time around, I feel like I was looking for things this time because I, I had that suspicion and I think they're there. You know, I don't think I had to stretch too hard to find yeah. them. Um, <laughs> I noticed a couple little moments. Yeah. Um, I think Felicity is, is quite fluid. I don't think that mm-hmm. if she was alive today, I don't think she would be, you know, a straight woman. Um, she's very like physically open and, and physically, um, free. And she, she kisses her friends on the mouth just without any thought to it at all. And, and she relishes scandalizing her friends in that way. But I think it also is clear through the rest of her character choices that she doesn't ever do anything she doesn't want to do. And she doesn't ever do anything that she doesn't genuinely feel very deeply, you know, inside of her. So I think those are probably expressions of something that are not quite too far down below the surface that she just doesn't quite know how to, you know, fully express. Um, that's my reading of it, but it's also pretty clear on the page that Sarah and Mary from you know 25 years ago, when they initially re-sparked this order and discovered these magical powers, um, before our four girls now, they were definitely in some sort of relationship that was actually pretty clearly on the page. And yeah. I don't remember that from when I was reading it as a kid. I think I just sort of glossed over it, but yeah, I mean, they were definitely more than friends. There was definitely a secret bond there that went further than just the magical powers that they shared. There was absolutely a deeper love than friendship. But I do really enjoy the fact that all of these people around them who clearly saw that, you know, the headmistress of the school and the other teachers and the um, the maid uh, who they talked to a lot about what happened 25 years ago, identified it. And they said, you know, they had a very close bond. They had close friendships. They were very good friends. And it sort of reminded me of the way that we, looking back on historical relationships between two women still refer to them as friends. You know, mm-hmm. they, they lived together for 30 years. They right. never married. They shared finances and they were very good friends. They were companions um, to each other. They were companions. Yeah. Exactly. And the, that, which, you know, nowadays would be a common law marriage at the very least. Yeah. So, right. um, I thought it was an interesting way to, to engage with that history and engage with that vernacular in a way that hasn't really changed. Like we still talk about historical figures from that era that were potentially like Sarah and Mary in that same way. So I thought that was an interesting little tidbit for, for Libba Bray to drop in there. Um, and she does have, you know, queer characters, not, I wouldn't say regularly throughout her books, but they're definitely there. So I appreciate the fact that looking back on it now, I, I saw that, that that has always been there. It's not just like her most recent series or her most recent books that I've read or, or books that I've just now discovered that I've read that I can figure that out. You know, it was always there. I just wasn't looking for it as a kid because um, I didn't know to look for it. But it's definitely there. And so I felt really good about the fact that, like, remember. I remember Felicity and I she was big and, and that I really liked her. And I think part of that is because I had a little crush on her and I think Gemma might have a little crush on her, but Felicity definitely is just like out there, there, you know, she, she does what she wants to do. And if what she wants to do is kiss her best friend, she goes for it. And I think that's why she's sort of stuck in the back of my brain, even if I didn't remember exactly why. Yeah. And she was definitely, I think, vibing with the Huntress in the realms. Like she and the Huntress, I think were really into each other also. But yeah, I flagged that too. I was like, I think Libba Bray is dropping some little hints. And again, this is 2003. Unfortunately, in 2003, there wasn't a lot of representation, um, especially in YA lit, of queer characters. And so even though some of those relationships weren't explored very deeply, I I liked there were hints throughout the story. Um, And it's good to know that she 
also has queer characters in others of her books. She's not just doing it because it's cool and expected now. She has understood the importance of that from the beginning. This is, again, her first book. So um, I appreciate you sharing a little bit more. And I'm glad that your sneaky suspicion was right. It's nice to be validated, you know, in the way that we read things as teens. Yeah, I always say that, you know, gay hindsight is twenty twenty. You can always... <laughs> those actresses that you were obsessed with as a kid that turned out, yeah, you probably had a crush on them. You just didn't know it yet. You didn't have the the words for it yet. Um, so this was definitely one of those books that goes in my, my gay hindsight is 2020 column. <laughs> <laughs> gay hindsight. All right. That, that makes sense. Um, so other than your gay hindsight, or I guess, including your gay hindsight, how do you think this book measures up to the way you read it as a kid? Like, did it meet your expectations? Has it let you down at all? I just love to hear how it held up or not. Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, it held up. Like I said, it definitely sparked my love of fantasy and and the magic and this sort of, you know, magical girls group. I think, as we talked about, there's obviously some problematic elements. I think if it was written today, we would have, hopefully, better treatment of the people of color, a more nuanced portrayal and treatment of the epilepsy storyline as Mm -hmm. well. I feel like we've come a long way as far as that's concerned um, from 2003 till now. And I think, like we said, there would probably be a little bit more explicit queer rep, which would be really cool to see in this kind of very specific world that Libba's created. So I think for the most part, it held up for me. You know, I was just as engaged. I was able to find other things that I hadn't seen before, but recognize things that I remember loving as a kid. So yeah, I think other than the fact that it's it was written, you know, 2003, <laughs> and things definitely could have been better as far as that's concerned, I, I still enjoyed the idea of looking at it through a new lens and seeing these things that I definitely am much better about now and don't, wouldn't, you know, let pass by in a book written now. So yeah, but I, I still absolutely enjoyed the experience. It's so funny you keep saying that it's 400 pages long because I know as a kid, I thought it was like one of the big, like it was so big, you know, it wasn't quite Harry Potter, but it was long. Um, <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, I, I read this in like, you know, a week. I read it in a couple of days. Like it doesn't, it didn't feel like 400 pages. Like it felt like 400 pages when you were younger, you know? Yeah. I mean, these books when we were kids, it was like an accomplishment. There was a, a real sense of accomplishment there, which is so funny to think of this one as 400 because it doesn't feel like that huge of an accomplishment. It, yeah, as and it it's did a, back then. And I had a paperback and it doesn't look like, cause when, when you emailed me, Megan, you were like, okay, I'm really sorry, but I think I'm going to change the book. And I think <laughs> the other book we had chosen is like maybe 120 or 140 pages. And I know you felt very guilty about it, which again, you don't need to. But again, like when it came in, I was like, oh, this doesn't look that long. Cause you know, now I just, I read so much for the podcast um, and it's long, but it's just a much different kind of undertaking when you're an adult. So um, I'm so happy right. that you introduced me to it because it, it is a really, um, I think it's a great example of world building was one of the things that I like the best about it. Again, both sort of in this like grounded boarding school setting and then with the realms and everything that they are exploring in the realms. So even though I don't have any sort of like childhood reading experience to compare it to, um, with the exception of some of those problems that we identified and things that I would have liked to see developed more or differently, I really enjoyed the reading experience too. So thank you so much for um, for choosing it and also for like not being afraid to ask to change it up because I think this probably um, in this particular moment offered a lot more room for discussion than the one we had talked about originally. So other than A Great and Terrible Beauty, Megan, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, reading a lot of different things because it is Pride Month. So I'm trying to like spread my, my reading time all around. Um, but most recently I finished, um, All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson, um, which is just, uh, it's a memoir. It's a manifesto. It's just like a wonderful book about queer black joy and queer black struggle. Um, and it's just, it's lovely and heartbreaking and just would, would highly, highly, highly recommend it. And I listened to it on audiobook from, uh, Libro FM. So I would highly recommend listening to the audiobook. Uh, the narration is just stunning. And that's one that's just been like bopping around in my head a lot for the last couple of weeks. So that's, that's my number one that I want to get out there. And I'll add to your shout out to Libro FM. Um, I'm sure that I will have included this in the intro for this episode as well, but if you are going to support Libro FM right now, which I also highly recommend, um, there are a lot of black owned bookstores on and partnered with Libro FM. So I would encourage you to check those out. Um, Uncle Bobby's is a, um, an independent bookstore in my new city, Philadelphia, and they are a black owned bookstore. They partner with Libro FM. Um, Loyal Books is another one, and I'll um, I'll make sure that I include information about 
some of the others you might want to check out. So that way we can just like continue to support and amplify the voices of these groups and uh, black authors, black indie booksellers, um, and also continuing to celebrate Pride Month. Um, This is a time that we can amplify all voices um, at once and just continue to learn and support each other. So after that additional plug, I'll be sure to plug your recommendation in the show notes for this episode, as well as A Great and Terrible Beauty. I'll include a link for those who want to check it out and all of the reviews that I found will be there as well. Um, and also a link to your bookstagram, Megan books and blazers. I really enjoyed following you for the last couple of weeks and months. Um, and I hope that listeners who aren't acquainted with you yet will get to know you after this episode. So thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to have had you on, especially for my 100th episode. Um, it's been so fun chatting with you and I just really appreciate you sharing this book with me. Yes. Thank you so much. And congratulations on the hundredth episode. I'm so honored to be a part of it. Um, yeah, this has been really great. And I'm really excited that you are now uh, discovering Libba Bray. She's got a lot of books out there. So I hope you I hope you enjoy the rest of hers as well. Me too. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.